pick your heart. You get to pick your heart when you are financially secure and responsible. Otherwise, it's picked for you, right? You can choose to struggle now or you can choose to struggle later, but like you don't get to escape life without going through any sort of conflict anywhere along the way with your career and your earning. And so, yeah, it's just a matter of like, which hard do you want to do? Do you want to do the hard of having to job hop and explain to different recruiters and interviewers that you deserve this position and that your experience matters? Or do you want to try and test your skill set in the open market and try to convince strangers to exchange money for whatever you're offering? They're all hard. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Journey to Launch is supported by First Republic Bank. A seamless banking experience is something we all want, but what does it really mean? At First Republic, it means you have access to your own personal banker, someone who knows your name and is there for you when you need them. I know at any time, I can just reach out to my personal banker, Linda, with any questions that I have. It's amazing to know that I won't get the runaround by the automated voice recordings and number prompts that lead you to a dead end that I don't have to be put on hold for hours before I can speak to an actual person. Whether you're browsing their full suite of services or just have questions about your bank statement, you can reach out to your personal banker by phone or email and through the best-in-class banking app. See what a difference an always-on seamless banking experience can make for you. Visit firstrepublic.com today to learn more. That's firstrepublic.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, you'll get the transcribed version of the conversation, the links that we mentioned, and so much more. Also, whether you are an OG journeyer or brand new to the podcast, I've created a free jumpstart guide to help you on your financial freedom journey. It includes the top episodes to listen to, stages to go through to reach financial freedom, resources, and so much more. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart to get your guide right now. Okay, let's hop into the episode. Okay, journeyers, I am really, really excited to bring back this powerhouse couple they've been on the podcast before actually twice i think you were on a roundtable discussion and then you came on like way in the beginning i was your first interview hey yep <laughs> well y'all on oprah stage just remember the little people okay so uh <laughs> i have on julian and kirsten from rich and regular on the podcast i'm so excited to have you back julian and kirsten are the couple behind the award-winning blog rich and regular and the new book, Cashing Out, Win the Wealth Game by Walking Away. I'm so excited to have them on. They are also producers of the award-winning video series, Money on the Table. They host their own podcast, the Rich and Regular Podcast, and they're based out of Atlanta. I'm really excited to talk to them about kind of like where they've been since our first episode conversation. And I'll definitely link that in the episode show notes. Talk more about their book, which will be out by the time you hear this interview. And so welcome back to the podcast. 
Thank you so much for having us. It's funny because the first time we were here, you were pregnant with Blake, with your youngest. And uh, <laughs> now, now I see her on Instagram all the time, cutting up. And it's like, man, it's amazing what could happen in a couple of years. I know. Because uh, she's four now. That's crazy. That's crazy. That is crazy. And I, was, I must have still been working in corporate America then because I didn't quit until after I had her. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You told us like <laughs> offline that that was your plan. And we were like, what? Why didn't you say that on the back? <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. And we both were. Cause I remember hiding downstairs. I mean, our son was probably just like a few months old, I think, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we were just hiding downstairs, trying to be quiet. You know? <laughs> like, it was so cool. We had one set of headphones. And so we, <laughs> she had it on the left. I had it on the ride and it was like, this is so cool. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a full circle moment. This is, this it is, is. And I mean, you guys have grown so much like in terms of like, I'm sure individually behind the scenes, but just like as a brand, the things that you were able to like put out and do, I think both of you quit your job since I think the, po- the last time we had our conversation and now you have a new book, Cashing Out. And I want to talk about it all, honestly. Like, I don't even know where to start because there's so many places we can but I want to do like a quick recap, even though everyone can go listen to the original episode, but just a like a quick where you currently are in terms of your financial independence journey. And then we can get into the juiciness of the book. Yeah. So, gosh, previously on <laughs> to launch. Um, yeah, it was it, it was it was a while. It's been a wild ride. And so I left my job in 2018 for uh, unfortunate reasons, but we were able to kind of turn that negative into a positive because it allowed us to really kind of double down on our entrepreneurial uh, ambitions and our business. And so far, that's been going really well. Um, At the time, we were real estate investors. We had a rental property and the home that we were living in at the time, we turned into our second rental. It was a debt-free rental because we paid off the mortgage on that property back in 2017 as well. Um, but we've since sold all of those properties. We've completely gotten out of real estate and again, focusing on our uh, current business, which is predominantly online and a few other projects that we have in the works. Kirsten walked away from her job in 2020. Is that 2020, right? 2020. Yeah. Right before the pandemic. Right before the pandemic. And, awesome timing. Yeah. <laughs> about a month after we signed the deal to write this book. Um, and so we've spent the last two years. It feels longer. That's actually it's closer to like three years, like writing the proposal, writing the book, doing the research, figuring out which parts of our story and the stories of others supplemented by all of this data around investing and diversity, equity, and inclusion, really just to try to capture the essence of our story and our message, but also our book, which is catered specifically to Black professionals. And so that's been a bit of the journey. I'm sure we've missed out yeah, we've done some parenting in between. In between. <laughs> you know. um, but yeah, it's been it's been uh, it, it's been dope. <laughs> like I'm not even gonna lie, it's been really really fun, and we're really fortunate um, to be where we are at this point. And so we've hit, I guess, what they call Coast Fi. We do not have to really think about funding our retirement anymore. So the work that we do is the work that matters to us, the work that we care about, um, and what interests us. Uh, in most cases, it is creative work, like this book, like the mixtape, like money on the table, et cetera. You know, I was telling someone else, like, I'm really fortunate. I get to do what I love with someone that I love and for people that I love. And um, it's it's a dream. It's a dream come true. Oh, my gosh. That's so beautiful. Okay, so many questions. I would love the tea on um, the real estate. 
I get uh, a lot of questions. I know the market is kind of crazy right now. Like if you're a buyer where, you know, people want to be real estate investors and there's a, a pull to it. There's like this prestige to it. And I would love to know for you, what made you decide to get out of the real estate game? Lessons learned, anything you would have did differently for anyone who would love to learn from you? Yeah, I think for us, it was a matter of having something to compare it to. So a lot of real estate investors get involved in real estate. They go deep on real estate. They join the communities and they become the identity of a real estate investor, which means getting as many doors as possible and accomplishing all the things that come with the hallmarks of being a real estate investor. And for us, when we thought about what we wanted our identities to be and what we wanted our assets to look like, real estate really didn't fit in with the kind of lifestyle that we wanted. We wanted to be able to have variable levers to affect pricing. So with real estate, I mean, unless you're doing short-term rentals with like an Airbnb, you don't have a whole lot of levers if you don't want to be an unethical landlord where you're just constantly raising the rent on people. And then there's a limit, right? There, The market kind of determines those conditions. Whereas in the creator economy or in digital entrepreneurship, kind of sky's the limit, right? You can create as many products and sell them as many times to as many people as the internet connects you to. And so that was far more appealing. When we started thinking about where we wanted to live long-term, if we think about you know relocating out of the country, we didn't want to have to have three assets here that we needed to maintain and you know monitor or liquidate. And so it just made sense for the life that we wanted to live. I'm sure there was some math involved. <laughs> That's more Julian's speed. But when I thought about how I wanted my ideal day to stack up, it didn't align to real estate, even though we were the kind of the laziest real estate investors ever. We had a management company. We had, you know, we had a first line of defense. But even then, like, I just did not want to worry about any tenant issues. Yeah, we actually think about our website as a form of digital real estate, right? right. It's, it's a piece of property online that we own. We get to charge people rent. <laughs> we could sell it if we wanted to. Um, we can use it as a distribution engine for products or affiliate marketing or any number of other ways. And so um, to Kirsten's point, like we had the privilege of being able to look at a variety of income sources and thinking about which ones we wanted to really focus on. And more often than not, real estate just kind of felt like, quite honestly, like an old school way of, of building wealth. It's not to write it off, but for us, considering the properties that we had, considering the amount of energy and the complexity of it. All, yeah, our learning curve. Like there are some people who have the right skill sets for real estate. They're, you know, former project managers. They are they're children of builders. Like <laughs> the learning curve for us as brands and, and marketing professionals was just high to yeah. get into the kind of real estate that we wanted to. And it was kind of like, um, I can probably cash out on some skills <laughs> in another area much quicker. Yeah. It's a lot easier to drive traffic to a website than it is to raise, raise rent mm-hmm. on a property. This is so refreshing because, you know, as someone who was also very interested in real estate, I have my master's in real estate. Like I tell people about like my background, they probably wonder why aren't you like investing more in real estate? The truth of the matter is like, I have enough things I need to do and worry about. (laughs) Like, I don't want to add any more work to my plate, but I love that we are like, you're sharing this because like some people just want to do things because it like looks cool and like, they think that's like the next step, but there are multiple ways to build wealth. Like there's no, no one path. There's multiple paths, but if you truly love real estate, you got the energy and time to do it, go all out. But if you like, have a nagging feeling because there might be someone right now where like stopping from making a mistake, like they really don't want to do it. But 
you know, the podcast and um, the social media folks are encouraging them. Like, that's the way to like get out. And it's like, there are multiple ways. And I know that's what you talk about with your book. Um, and it's, there's simple ways too. Like it's old fashioned. It's kind of like the lazy way, but that's kind of like my, that's my style. That's my speed. And I feel like that is what I want to talk about because your whole like premise, like the whole rich and regular brand is like, you can be rich, but you could be regular. Like it doesn't have to be a life of opulence. Like if you want that, that's fine, but it can look a certain way. So I'd love to talk about how like this book for you kind of synthesizes like everything that you've been talking about for the past couple of years and really, if you were to like say two sentences of what it like means to cash out, because the title of your book, like what does that mean? And then we'll get into it. So we'll start with what it means to cash out. I think it goes back to what you're saying. We're so conditioned to be excellent in all things. We're so conditioned to work twice as hard for half as much. And so cashing out is really flipping that on its head and it becomes the financial and career blueprint that shows people what winning actually looks like. We tend to think that winning is like getting the big job, getting the promotion, getting the position that you've wanted the whole time. But really in today's market, winning looks like being able to walk away on your own terms with your dignity intact. And so we feel like everybody should have the right to quit a job when they're done doing it. And unfortunately, that's not the case for many Black professionals for a number of reasons, some within our control and some without. But cashing out is really about giving Black professionals and people of color and any marginalized identity. There have been white women who are neurodiverse that found a lot of lessons in the book to be meaningful, but giving them a new narrative to say, this is what winning looks like. I know what you've been told. I know all the stories that we've heard over the years from women and men and and well-meaning adults, but this is a new economy. And what you need to do is build your own safety net so that you can ultimately rest. That was more than two sentences. (laughs) Actually, no, but I love that, though, because that's the thing. I think there's this, like, perception, uh, and we've talked about this in the past, but, like, to bring it back here, it's like there's this perception that, you know, you have to, like, look like wealth. And, again, I'm not saying that you can't look like wealth, right, with, like, the nice house, nice car, or be, like, in the forefront, you know? But this is idea of, like, there's so many, like, people who really have money, and you can't tell, you know, stealth wealth. Like, they have money, you can't tell they have money, people that you assume that have money and then they have, they don't have anything. But when it comes down to having like this option of walking away and not being stuck in a situation or with a manager or in a career that you hate, like they can't do anything about it. They feel stuck. And so you're teaching like concepts in this book about like how people can get out of that. So I'd love to go into like, if someone is like, all right, like I get it. Like I need the ability to cash out at some point. (laughs) What does that look like for someone who's first finding out about financial independence Maybe we can go old school and just do financial independence 101 from your terms, what it means, and then like what the first steps are in order to put yourself on this path to cashing out. Yeah, so I think there are a couple of chapters that really specifically get to the root of offering kind of the basics for people who kind of need that help making sense of it all. And I think the first one is around giving your income a very clear purpose. Um, and so we've created this four step or four part framework that helps people understand like what the purpose of income is. Cause I think a lot of us are just drawn to creating income, trying to have as much of it as possible, but we don't really know what we're aiming for. Uh, we just kind of want that number. Right. And so people who are making six figures want to make six figures. Mm-hmm. And then people who are making six figures are trying to make seven, but there's no, like, it doesn't really matter. Like I'm, we know several people. Uh, and I think you and I specifically, Jamila, like we know several people 
who bring in millions of dollars uh, in their business or half a million dollars or whatever it is, but they don't keep any of it, right? And I think if you just do a couple searches online, you can see that this is actually very prevalent. And so I think that's the first part is helping people understand and get really clear on what your per- what the purpose of your income is. And to us, the ultimate purpose of your income is to help you achieve financial freedom, right? So beyond financial independence, we believe financial freedom is the ultimate goal. So the second piece is helping people to think about their jobs. You can't really talk about money without talking about work because that's how a lot of us actually earn our income. And specifically for people of color and other marginalized groups, like we have to like shed the romantic relationship that we have or this fantasy that we have with work. We have to actually be honest about some of the other uglier parts, whether it be fatigue that sets in or burnout or racism or sexism or ageism or any of the other negative isms that creep outside of uh, of our lives and into our day-to-day work lives, like they all have an impact on our earning potential, uh, which has an impact on our ability to save. And so this idea of just kind of doing the work, working hard, assuming that you're going to get this promotion or that you can even catch up later because you will always earn more than you are earning right now or the same amount that you will uh, in the future. It's just not true, right? Like it's not true um, for the vast majority of people. And so we need to be honest about that and use that to rethink the way that we plan our careers. And so we offered up a framework, which is to help people really put a limit on it, right? Let's begin with the end in mind. We're not going to walk into our careers thinking that we're so dope, so smart that we're going to be able to keep this thing going. Uh, the gravy train is going to be smooth. Uh, it's like, nah, let's put a cap on it, 15 years. And here's how we break it down. First five years, this is what we're going to do to help eliminate debt or limit debt to the point where it opens up opportunities for us to reallocate our money. Second set of that time period, we're going to start focusing on skill building, not just so that we can earn more at the jobs, but so that we can earn uh, more outside of the job, which of these skills are monetizable um, outside of the job and inside the job. And then the last five years is really saying, all right, let's pressure test it. Let's see us uh, off these skills that we've uh, identified, which we're calling our superpowers, which one of these do we think has the greatest amount of growth potential. And throughout that time period, you're also investing so that at the end of that 15-year period, you've got options, which is a privilege to have, right? Whether you are tired, whether you get laid off, whether right now there's a threat of a recession or what any other reason, you at that point will have the freedom, the ability to say, hey, I'm good. We've planted, we've invested along the way, we've completely eliminated debt. We've built skills that allow us to uh, build a business or just sort of take a break if we want to. But I think it's about being able to walk away and like redefining what a successful career looks like, which is inclusive of putting a cap on how long it is. Right. And so I want to like just reiterate, like, and I think this is a powerful concept that you do have, uh, is that really in 15 years, anyone can gain this level of the, the ability to cash out. And it doesn't mean financial independence in the sense that you never have to work again, but it means um, probably how it relates mostly to like my level four when I talk about the stages of financial independence is this work flexibility stage. It's like you have options to walk away from something that's not serving you. Right. Without question. And I can already feel the eye rolls, right? So there's some people who say, oh, that's easy for you to say, right? You live in Atlanta and Atlanta's not nearly as expensive as New York or yeah, I'll make more than six figures. And I hear that. We account for that in the book, but it doesn't take away from the fact that we know that this is possible because we've done it. 
we talk about some of the stories that other people who've done. And by the way, many people who've done this and are really diligent about doing it, more often than not end up leaving well before that 15-year mark, right? They're able to walk away because of a boom market or because they realize that actually the skills that I've been giving to this employer at a discount are far more valuable uh, in the open marketplace. Or my side hustle after four or five years is now starting to earn me supplemental income, which I've been able to use to eradicate debt or invest at a significantly higher rate and so on. And so we account for that. We acknowledge the fact that it's certainly a lot easier to do for dual income uh, or dual earning high income houses. 100% understand that. But we do know that for other people with a couple of tweaks and thinking differently and acting differently, you can certainly make progress to help you get on that same path. And it's interesting, you said like oftentimes it can take less than 15 years to get to this like flexibility stage or this cashing out stage. And it's so true. And it's almost like, you know, you say 15 years, even though for some people that doesn't even seem long enough to like say people can do it in that time. But like for most people, it does end up being less because of this, like you said, the skill sets you acquire. And like for those of uh, people who are listening and they're like, well, you're saying it's going to take five years to get out of debt based on kind of like where I am. I feel like like it's going to take like 15, you know, they feel like it's going to take longer and then they don't start. I feel like so many people like are in that part of the process where it's just like, why even start? Why bother? Because it's going to take so long. And I think what you're doing is trying to encourage people and really say, like, it actually could take you less. It's taken, it, I think it's taken probably you less. It's taken me less time to get this level of flexibility. And I couldn't have accounted for that before I started. But like you said, like things start happening fast, compounding for you as you start doing these things. That's because your brain changes along the way. And that's what people can't calculate, right? It's like trying to calculate exponential math, right? Our brains aren't set up like that. We think it's just going to be linear, you know, measurable improvement. But once you start realizing the benefits of freedom along the way, where even if you can't knock out all your debt, if you can knock out 40% of it, 20% of it, you got some different options because your credit score reflects that. Your career goals can change because you have different debt obligations. And so the goal is to just work at it, chip at it along the way, and then be open to how many options become available to you as you make progress in the 15 years. Right. So the first five years, like if we do break this down again, in terms of like the debt payoff stage, you're still saying to invest, like it's important to still invest in this stage or throughout all these stages. What are some strategies if someone is listening and they're like, all right, I'm in debt now. I have this corporate career but I don't want it to take five years or, you know, maybe it will take five years, but what are the strategies that I can go like through to help me get there faster? What are some tips or advice you'd have for them? I think it it really depends on the person and and the situation. I mean, you've done so many uh, episodes on things that people have done to grow their income or people who've gotten really crafty. Uh, And so I would say start there, right? Like if you're listening to this podcast, go back and listen to some of the others because any number of things will work. Like we've done it all. We've, well, not at all. But and like, we write about that. We talk about the snowball, several. the avalanche method. We've frozen credit cards, like literally in blocks of ice. We've gone cash only. We've done envelopes, or as the kids call it these days, cash stuffing. Like we've done a little bit of everything. And I think it's just to find the thing that works best for you, find that it's not working anymore. Mm. So as we get into like the next five years, there's like this honing of your skill set part of the journey. I find that there's so many people who may be feeling like, all right, I know I have skill sets. Like I know I'm, I'm valuable in the marketplace, but I don't know necessarily that I want to pursue that skill set. 
or there's something else, or I don't even know what those skill sets are. How does one find out like what it is that they can market and what it is that they actually want to do so they can capitalize on it? So we actually don't talk about this in the book, but I think that's a really great question. And I can tell you what we did. Um, and it's really kind of paying attention to, especially if you have a job, like if you work a corporate gig, pay attention to the contractors um, at your company, right? So if you think about who the paid employees are, there's obviously going to be an organizational chart. Those are the people and the positions and the types of departments that the company believes is core to business operations. But pay attention to who the contractors are. And so in my case, the contractors, uh, as I think back to uh, my career, the contractors were mostly project managers, PMPs, and um, people who were uh, well-skilled in, in what's called an agile methodology, which is like a project management uh, approach to help getting things done more efficiently. Those were really, really important skill sets, right? And so that should be an indicator to you to say, all right, this might be, as I'm thinking about what my next certification may be, this may be the thing that I really want to pay attention to. Another way to look at it is to look at a, at a company and then think about, all right, Here's the budget that let's say they give for marketing and what, let's say it's a million dollars, but they always carve out another 500,000 for this particular agency, right? There's value there, right? And you need to actually start thinking about yourself as potentially being the person that is leading up an agency. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be the person who has a team of 10. You could be one person or two people. And the other person could be just a friend of yours who fills the gap for the skill set that you just don't have. But the point is, you have to look at yourself as a business a little bit, right? You have the ability to earn income in so many ways beyond just your salary. One of the things we talk about in the book is that your salary is, is not your ceiling, right? And you have to think differently because so often we conflate the two. We, we talk about income, but we're really just talking about our salary or we're talking about what we actually earn in terms of our actual wage. Your salary could be significantly greater than that, but that's where rent collected comes in. That's where all the 1099s and all the other things that could be coming in from any number of people who value your skill set, whether it be consulting or project management or speaking or hell, it could be an ebook. We talk about that all the time. Like You don't have to be a New York Times bestselling writer to earn money having written an ebook, right? I think about so many of the presentations that I've given at my job when I had a traditional job that I did that I just thought were just the most absolute beautiful presentations in the world. And then you find out that the executive that you wrote it for, like didn't even look at it, right? There are people right now who are taking all of the principles and all those skill sets, turning it into a course and earning supplemental income off of that very same set of design skills and thought. And so that's really what we're talking about. It's like beyond just blocking or, or really trying to plummet your spending. Like we really have to think about income differently. Uh, and so whether it's a side hustle, whether it's a, um, a, a second job, or if you want to join the overemployed, this new set of people who are working multiple jobs remotely and earning twice, or in some cases, three times as much, like this is the world that we live in right now. And so many of the rules that were written 10, 20, 30 years ago, literally do not uh, apply anymore. And so we're trying to introduce people to a new set of rules and what we call rituals that we think they should be factoring into their careers and their financial lives. Today's podcast is presented in collaboration with Behind the Brilliance, an interview podcast for the intellectually curious and relentlessly ambitious. 
Each week, host Lisa Nicole Bell talks with innovators, creatives, and entrepreneurs about their lives and work to reveal inspiring stories and practical strategies for leveling up. Behind the Brilliant has more than 200 episodes in the archive, and past guests include Debbie Millman, Seth Godin, Issa Rae, and yours truly. With millions of downloads and a devoted following of smart and successful listeners, Behind the Brilliance has been praised by Inc., Refinery29, Forbes, and Apple for consistently delivering new perspectives on timeless topics. Learn more at BehindTheBrilliance.com and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast or wherever you stream your podcast. For you, entrepreneurship is like a big part of that. But what about those people who are just like, one, I don't think that's for me. I actually don't want the extra work or to come home and do that side hustle. Do you really feel like that? that is actually the way that a lot of people should be like veering towards like this creator economy or, you know, like online digital space of selling things? And can you do it just with a full time income from your job, like reach this cashing out, like follow your framework to cash out by just working? Absolutely. It's yeah. the easiest way. Yes, the easiest way. <laughs> yeah. If you can continue to upskill so that you have relevant skills that attract high paying employers that are keeping up or outpacing uh, inflation and the other cost of rising, the rising cost of goods, then yeah, great. Like, please continue <laughs> to fall under the safety net of a consistent every other week paycheck. But what we're finding in the data is that very few of those jobs actually exist. And then if you dig deep into the demographics of the companies where they do exist, the likelihood that if you are a Black woman or a Black male or disabled or any marginalized identity, that you would be along the same trajectory, get the same pay, get the same opportunities as your white male counterparts is very slim to none. Right. You look at these huge companies that offer giant salaries and they have four percent of their employees are black or two percent of them are black women. And then if you get to the C-suite or the VP level, the director level, it's even slimmer. So I think we do have to confront the uncomfortable truths. I'm not saying that you need to make a VP level salary to do this. It kind of depends on your expenses. But you do have to consider what you're going to be putting up with while you pursue this in a traditional career. And making plans sometimes. We we want to stay employed, but it's not our choice. There's a group of people at Flix and Meta and Google right now that are dealing with unexpected layoffs and they're the most talented in their class and they still got let go. So it's just something to consider that corporate America is not necessarily the safest bet either. You have to pr- be prepared for disruptions in income regardless of what path you take. Yeah. And to let go of the like that loyalty, like from the people who do stay within the corporate realm to earn their income, like and they make significant increases to that income. Mm -hmm. It's not with the same company, usually like it's like they have to job hop and change companies. And so to be open to that and to look for those opportunities if you are taking the career track to wealth. Yeah, we always say pick your hard. You get to pick your hard when you are financially secure and responsible. Otherwise, it's picked for you, right? You can choose to struggle now or you can choose to struggle later, but like you don't get to escape life without going through any sort of conflict anywhere along the way with your career and your earning. And so, yeah, it's just a matter of like, which hard do you want to do? Do you want to do the hard of having to job hop and explain to different recruiters and interviewers that you deserve this position and that your experience matters? 
Or do you want to try and test your skill set in the open market and try to convince strangers to exchange money for whatever you're offering? They're all hard. Yeah. Okay. So you also talk about like these different kind of personality types or spending types within the book. And I'd love for you to go through them, like explain what they are, like a brief overview, but then hopefully someone can identify where they are on this spectrum that you talk about. Yeah. And um, I will start with a disclaimer because anytime you are like adding a label and talking about people, you are obviously making a generalization, but there are certainly patterns that you start to identify. And I'm sure you've done the same thing when you have thousands of conversations about money with people. It's very easy. And in some cases, in just a few minutes, you can identify exactly who they are. And so there were three kind of personality types that we identified. One was what we called uh, the financially insecure. And these are the people who are kind of in a perpetual state of always having uh, more month at the end of their money. I've been financially insecure. Um, I support a financially insecure parent. Um, The way that you see the world when you are constantly um, running low is very, very different. The possibilities are very different for you. What you value uh, is very different uh, in life. And so it, it sets the tone for just about every single thing that you do, including uh, relationships. On the other end of the extreme, you have people that we call fast spenders. Um, And these are, I find them to be just a fascinating group of people because they don't have a similar emotional relationship with money that most people do. Money is just something that flies in and out of their lives. It's all about fast. They earn it fast. They burn it fast. Um, They are highly specialized people. They could be the person who is uh, in tech with a legal degree. (laughs) <laughs> you know, yeah. or I'm in corporate finance or pharmaceutical I'm VC, sales, pharmaceutical <laughs> sales, all these people, are, you know, the, the the software engineers of the world that are able to just, you know, move really, really quickly when it comes in and when it comes out, they're not thinking twice about it. They don't have time to track it because it doesn't even make sense. They just know that they, there's more coming tomorrow. And what we've learned is that a lot of them, especially amongst the black folks, they're not factoring in the one thing that gets all of us, which is father time, right? Uh, it gets all of us. You will get tired. And unfortunately, you, especially if you are in a position where you're always reliant on someone else to pay you, especially like a job, they have every incentive to try to cut expenses too. And in some cases, that comes at a loss of income for you. And so we actually don't try to help them too much because there aren't that many of them. Um, but um, they're a unique set of people. And we know that we've come across them quite a few times. Who we are talking to, who we are targeting in the book are the people that we call the middle. It's the people uh, that are in between. We think they're the most interesting of the three groups as well, because what I found is that a lot of them have sort of grown from being financially insecure, but they can't let go of that identity. They remember the days where they had to fight and claw for every single dollar, and it sets the tone for how they manage their money today. And in some cases, that's a good thing because they don't want to go back to where they used to be. But oftentimes, it it also leads to them having limits in terms of what they believe is possible. Risk averse. They're very risk averse, which is why they double down on their careers. They double down on their jobs. They double down on traditional ways of building wealth like real estate and ignore newer ways that are like tech or the creator economy. And then on the other side, what I find is interesting about the middle is that their taste preferences are oftentimes set by the people who we consider, who they consider to be fast spenders, right? So those people who are able to 
make hundreds of thousands of dollars. They're out in Bali right now or taking trips and doing those things. It bothers them. It, it like is like, oh my God, that's what they believe is is success looks like. Yes. And so that sets the tone for what they want. And so they get stuck in the cycle of never feeling like what they have is, is enough. enough right. Mm-hmm. I will call someone out right right now without actually calling their name. Oh, One of our family. He's never friends. good at this because he'd be giving all the descriptors. He's not gonna listen to the episode anyway. <laughs> like, he's not gonna listen to this episode anyway. You never, you never know who's a journeyer. He may be a journeyer. You never know. Right? <laughs> he might be a journeyer, but, you know, it's all right. I'll buy him a drink and we'll make up for it. But like, and, and I'm sure there's somebody listening right now where they'll say things, you know what? Gas prices are high. This is ridiculous. I'm going to go ahead and buy me a Tesla. That's a hell of a leap. That's a hell of a leap, right? There's a lot in between. Gas prices are high. I can't afford a car. And so the next logical solution for me is to buy a luxury vehicle that allows me to save $100 every single month, right? Because that's just too much. But this $75,000 solution, which is going to cost me significantly more if I finance it, is exactly what I need at this moment in time, right? That's a great example of them like being stuck in between these two worlds. They don't want to go back. They feel pressed by the 100 or $200 that they're spending every single month right now, ignoring everything else that they're spending. But their taste preferences are very much set by the upper echelons of luxury and those kinds of things. And so it creates this warped sense of understanding. Uh, and I think it really highlights the lack of purpose that they are applying to their income. They're sort of stuck in this mindset of believing that the sole purpose of the income is to afford them the option to buy the things that they like and not to ultimately achieve financial independence or move beyond that and actually achieve financial freedom. This conversation reminds me kind of back when we first talked and we had our roundtable discussion and we were talking about just like Black people and wealth and sometimes like this concept of financial independence and some of the levers you can pull to reach it or like, you know, being frugal and not spending all your money, you know, all your income, investing it. And like it kind of is in the opposite of maybe what our family members who came here, like their whole point was like, give us this education so that we could live the life. And like now there's so much messaging on you deserve it. Like, you know, especially like as people who have been marginalized and treated so badly in this country, it's kind of like, it's your time, right? So if you deserve, if you want that bag, you want that car, Black people can have wealth too. We can have luxury too. Like it's confusing. It's, it's confusing, especially if you are not financially secure, if you are not investing already on just like, just a plain investing, simple path to wealth kind of like track. And you're hearing these messages. I feel like while I agree, like we should be able to have, and and if you want to show your wealth in that way, go ahead. We do deserve the luxury. But it's kind of like I, I, I sometimes feel afraid for people who are not to this point yet, who are listening to those messages. And then it's like it's literally keeping them held down to a job, to a situation that is not great. So let's talk through that a bit, because I feel like we're not going to solve it here, but <laughs> let's yeah. just talk about it. <laughs> it's so interesting because at, at the time we're recording this, Walmart just came out with some Juneteenth branded ice cream. And Black people are up in arms about the commercialization of our pain and our suffering. And like Juneteenth is not something for you to make a profit off of. It is it is meant to be a commemorative holiday. But what we haven't gotten to the point of understanding is the commercialization of luxury is also an issue. It is also an issue that plagues our community. Luxury is not necessarily a branded item. It's not necessarily the biggest and blingiest thing <laughs> that's available. Luxury is being able to wake up every single day and decide what you want to do. And if you don't want to do something, you just don't do it. 
Luxury is not having to ask people permission to get what you want. Luxury is being able to make moves based on the fact that you just feel like doing something different. And so the more we start to normalize those narratives, in addition to the fact that, yes, luxury can be a handcrafted Hermes bag that, you know, with aged leather, (laughs) and it can be that too. But like, we need to kind of talk about a more expansive definition of what luxury is in this time. Because again, the old definition isn't going to serve us forever. It's just going to lead you to be somebody with a bunch of items, but still has to go to work every single day or can't afford a health emergency or can't do what they want to do with their time or with you know their caretaking because they've been bogged down by all of their things. In a lot of ways, this actually also makes me think about the beef that I have with the term Black excellence. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> it is the term that we use to uh, celebrate when we see people who are doing great things. But I also think that it is like the, the mantra that leads us to believe that we deserve these things and should be um, also like endlessly resilient, meaning we should go to work and, it, it, you know, what we are faced with pales in comparison to what our parents' generation or what our ancestors. Um, had to deal with. And so this is a drop in the bucket. And the reality is like, it's okay to be 40 and tired, right? Like it's it's okay to admit that. That doesn't make you a failure. It doesn't make you uh, soft to be an exhausted white collar worker just because so many of your family members are blue collar workers and they're going to clown you if you say that you're tired and make a joke about your fingers and your thumbs. Right. <laughs> These are the things that 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 are, I think, baked into the culture and set the tone for how we view work and money. And what we're presenting to them is like we really need to reframe the reward. Yes. Uh, there are uh, so many other things that are just as valuable, if not more valuable. Right. Like being able to comfortably support a parent who is financially insecure without resentment is a huge reward. Being able to uh, take your children on experiences uh, that they saw on television and not have to worry about, you know, asking a boss uh, whether or not you could take that time is a reward and so on and so on. Um, But being regular is a reward. (laughs) Like not having, not feeling like you have to be excellent all All the the time. time. Like, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a quote in uh, Queen and Slim about that, you know, where he was like, man, why do we feel like we need to be excellent all the time? Like, you know, our peers don't have to do that and they're doing just fine. So there's something to be learned from that. And we talk about that too uh, in our book. And so, um, you know, it's not that I reject the term. I understand its value, uh, but we have to look at both sides of it, right? On the other side of Black excellence is that Black excellence is exhausting. And we offer, you know, we have to give ourselves an opportunity to just rest mm-hmm. and to just appreciate simplicity. To your point about the investment approach, you don't have to wake up to, like, to be financially savvy. You do not have to wake up and review charts and do any of those things. You don't have to do any of that. You can literally be... A dollar cost average, I'm going to commit to paying myself first every week and let the market do the rest. And quite honestly, let all of the other Black excellent people who work for publicly traded companies (laughs) do their part to drive up the valuations of those companies and you as a stockholder reap the benefits. That to me is a better quality of life. And I think more of us need to kind of embrace that simpler approach. Yeah. I was going to say, you also don't have to wait for the revolution 
to rest, right? A lot of us are looking for big macro solutions that apply to every single Black person. If all of us can't go, then none of us should go. And it's like, at the end of the day, it's important that like that we, we, we recognize that that's not how social change happens, right? We've never had a sweeping change that affects everybody the same way all at once. But it's important that we rest because movements require funding. Movements require strategists. Movements require people more than just, you know, protesters in the street. And so, like, we have to make sure that we put our masks on first and make sure that we're taking the breaks when we need to. Like, I love Nat Ministry and all of of our good sisters fighting for the revolution, too. There's not shade at all. Like, but we, we have to you know, at some point put on a personal financial plan to be like, I want to be able to do that. I completely agree with everything that she says. We deserve rest. That's what we deserve. We deserve a break as much as we deserve luxury. Like we deserve rest. And there's a personal finance plan that you can implement that allows you to take that when you need it. Yeah. And the thing about too, like, I love this whole conversation around excellence. Cause I always like to say like, I don't know what it looks from the outside. Like, I feel like I'm basic, but in a good way. Like, you know, like, I don't need a lot of (laughs) things to... (laughs) Relatable, sis. Relatable. (laughs) Right, like... But again, if you need to do all the other things, that's fine. But in terms of, like, being basic, I don't mind sometimes just being basic and doing the minimum, okay? You know, what's crazy, though, I think we should also recognize that perhaps sometimes, like, what I consider basic and minimum to other people is, like, that's still, you're doing a lot of... You're still doing a lot, or it looks, like, in a certain way. I think it's also important. You talk about this in your book. The community aspect is something that's so important here because the flashiest sometimes, you know, again, there's so many ways to create wealth. And if you're into it and doing it kind of like the flashy in your face way, like I'm entertained by that too. You know, like that inspires me sometimes when I see that. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't know about that thing. Like I'm gonna look into that, put that on my wish list as something I can look forward to doing. But I think there's a lot of us who are doing it, I guess, the more responsible way. And it's not as flashy, the type of luxury that you just defined, like, you know, having the option to take your kids to school or hire certain help in a household so that you can do other things. Like, it doesn't seem as outwardly flashy. But you wouldn't know that unless you're like really paying attention. Because I also find that people like us who are doing that, we're not always plastering that all over the internet. (laughs) And so do you feel like it's our responsibility, though, as like, leaders of the basic movement. (laughs) Where is that balance between like, should we be talking about our wealth more publicly so that people can see that it can be done differently? Because I don't necessarily talk as much anymore about how much I'm saving and investing. And I don't know how much you guys talk about it, but should we be doing more of that to show the other side of it? Kirsten may have a different point of view on this than I do, but I think that there's a balance to be struck because if your goal is to reach people and to show people that it's possible and that this is what it actually looks like. I think you really have to be mindful of the role that media plays in that, right? Um, and because right now, the reason why so many people feel like rich looks like this very specific visual that they have in their mind is because that's the image that the media has pushed to them, whether it's in magazines or online or on social media, like that's what you see. You take a basic picture on IG, it's not going to get the types of likes and views, it's literally baked into the algorithm. Like you got to be really popping and moving in order for people to see that. Um, at the same time, I think what it really, what it also highlights is the importance of role models, right? So when we look at Black people, um, like in white America, like this is actually a well-known sort of idea. You know, we talk about this, this notion of stealth wealth, um, you know, like it's 
it's a very it, it's an identity that they are likely more familiar with than black people are right we don't have that we don't have those stories to tell we nearly as many i should say and so it is a balance right because people like us who are sort of kind of advocates of simplicity and stealth wealth we owe it to ourselves to especially if we want to grow the message and encourage other people to do it we owe it to ourselves to take advantage of media opportunities to help blast that message to as many people as possible but to Kirsten's point, we also owe it to ourselves to stay true to who we are and to rest as needed, right? And the reality is to do all of that is to invite a whole bunch of things that one is also exhausting, but might be contrary to your own value system. And so there's a balance to be struck between the two. I think for us, like being able to publish a book at a high level, being able to do things like money on the table, which our hope is quite honestly to take it to television for that very reason. But there's a balance, right? That's not something that's going to take us all year to do, but we're passionate about it. And so it's it's complicated. And I think we do have some role models, but we just chalk it up to the culture. Like we all laugh about the phrase rich auntie, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because we all have one. <laughs> we all we all joke about being the one that made it because we all know that in, the, in, a, in a given family, there is usually somebody who makes good financial decisions or gets financially lucky. And so we do have those examples, but the problem or the challenge is we don't ask the right questions. We're not asking different questions about what trade-offs they made along the way. We just see the outcome and then we label it like, oh, okay, okay, rich auntie. Like we need to start going back and kind of excavating their process and getting them to talk about some of the moves that they made, what it was like to leave the state, what it was like to apply for jobs that they may not have been qualified for, what it was like to challenge authority and save money at a time when everybody was asking them for stuff. So we need to kind of enhance those those conversations to make sure that we are getting the same lessons and wisdom that our white counterparts are getting. Now, for you, you again, grown so much since we last spoke like years ago, like more than four years ago at this point. And I heard you say in the beginning of the show, like you're at Coast FI, which for anyone listening, that's like at the ability where like your standard retirement age, you have enough that you're good. Um, You don't need to really invest. As I understand it, you can correct me if you look at it differently, that you don't need to invest anything else in your retirement accounts. You'll have enough by the time of the standard retirement age. Yep. Are you still pursuing financial independence and early retirement and not in the sense that you're going to stop working, but for you, is there like a mark where you're saying to yourself, we're still investing in saving so that, you know what, like if we don't want to do podcasts, if we don't want to, you know, have this blog anymore, we'll be able to stop that in a couple of years. Or for you, have you met and married what your purpose and passion is to work? And so it doesn't matter how long you do it. So yes, we are um, at what is known as Coast FI, Coast Fi. I, I really don't really love these labels, but <laughs> to your point, that's exactly what it means. It's coasting. It's yeah. It's the idea that you know we earn enough income to support our cost of living right now. We don't really have to save. We are actually fortunate in that we earn more than we actually need, and so we're able to save. And so when we start thinking about ways to save and invest more, we're doing things like our son's 529, padding that some more, or things like the custodial IRAs, but also just being mindful of the rest and and the types of memories that we want to bottle up and capture uh, during these really interesting moments. And so we're thinking about our parents in their golden years and being able to take vacations with them. Um, In terms of how long we'll plan on doing this, there's certainly a cap to it because I think like anything else, like we owe it to ourselves to just let things go and and open ourselves up to other opportunities. Um, But right now, I think 
we are really living a dream. Like we have the ability at a high level to create content, to collaborate with brands, to do things like public speaking, to travel to financial conferences, to do things what we call solve thousand dollar problems, right? There are tons of thousand dollar problems around the country, little things that we um, have the ability to solve with money, right? And so money solves a lot of problems in this world to Kirsten's point. Movements need to be funded. And so for us, we're at a really cool point where it's like, all right, we've got enough. We've got more than enough uh, for us, for our family, and we're doing our part to give back. It's something that we'll, we'll commit to doing for a couple of years, and then we'll reevaluate and see uh, see what the next chapter is. Kirsten's like, yep. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> Co-sign. <laughs> well, okay. I love this conversation. You know I love talking to you guys. Uh, every conversation, I learned something new about you. Can you please tell everyone where they can get your book and learn more about you if they want to dive deeper? Yes. Our book, Cashing Out, Win the Wealth Game by Walking Away, is available June 14th, wherever books are sold. We would so appreciate all of your support. Thank you to those who may have already pre-ordered. But if not, it's not too late. Get your copies. It's in all forms, audio and print and ebook. And then if you want to just keep up with our shenanigans, you can find us at richandregular.com. And then we are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube at Rich and Regular. Yes. And I will link all of that in the episode show notes. Thanks again, guys. Thank Thank you. you. Don't forget, you can get the episode show notes for this episode by going to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this. And you can still grab your jumpstart guide for free to help you on your journey to financial freedom by going to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart. If you want to support me and the podcast and love the free content and information that you get here, here are four ways that you can support me and the show. One, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts, that purple app on your phone, your Android device, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it is that you happen to listen, just subscribe so you are not missing an episode. And if you're happening to listen to this in Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe there. I appreciate and read every single review. Number two, follow me on my social media accounts. I'm at Journey to Launch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I love, love, love interacting with journeyers there. Three, support and check out the sponsors of this show if you hear something that interests you. Sponsors are the main ways we keep the podcast lights on here. So show them some love for supporting your girl. Four, and last but not least, share this episode, this podcast with a friend or family member or coworker so that we can spread the message of Journey to Launch. All right, that's it. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.